when we talk about promoting women, it's not meritocratic. It's reverse sexism. I've heard so many things. Well, let's break that down. Why do you think that? Where do those belief systems come from? And let's try to understand and interrogate it so that you can at least figure out why you're behaving in the way that you're behaving. You have to be curious. Welcome to On Your Terms with Erin King, a show about living a life you truly love. Here's Erin. Well, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, are you an ally, an accomplice, or a co-conspirator? Not sure? Well, neither was I until this unbelievably eye-opening, enthralling episode with the one and only Dr. Tina Opie. Dr. Tina Opie has been featured in O Magazine, The Washington Post, and is a regular commentator on Harvard Business Review's Women at Work podcast. She's been featured on on NPR. She's worked with Hulu, American Express, MIT, you name it. She's also an award-winning researcher, consultant, author, and the Associate Professor of Management at Babson College. She's advised small and large firms and individuals in financial services, entertainment, media, beauty, education, healthcare industries, and more. She is the founder of OCG and shoots us straight in this episode, where she really guides us about the steps we can take to be a better ally, accomplice, and co-conspirator when it comes to more diversity, equity, and inclusion in our personal and professional lives. This is a don't miss episode, friends. Have a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of On Your Terms. I have with me today, Dr. Tina Opie, who is the CEO, founder, and visionary of the Opie Consulting Group, an absolute dynamo. We have a shared mutual friend, Laura Gassner-Otting, LGO, who's one of our favorite mutual girlfriends. And I'm so thankful that she brought us together here today, Dr. Opie. So thank you for joining the On Your Terms community. Erin, thank you so much for having me. And please call me Tina. Okay. Well, thank you, Tina. I appreciate it. Well, (laughs) look, we have been jamming already for about 30 minutes before we even hit record. There's so much we want to dive into. I think, you know, when I was looking at your incredible body of work, there was a sentence on your website that really struck me, sort of talking about kind of what's not really working right now. And there's a sentence where you say, without inclusion and equity, diversity is kind of a limited approach. So help us understand that a little bit more. I'm going to get a little bit professorial here because I want to define terms. So diversity is about numeric representation. Inclusion is about who's involved in the decision-making process. And equity has to do with justice, with making sure that inputs and outputs are fair. So when I said that, you know, sometimes it's easier. It's not the easiest thing always, but it is easier to make sure that you have numbers than it is to make sure that the people who you're bringing on are involved in the decision-making process Mm. and that those people are being treated equitably. So sometimes Mm. what I found when I work with organizations is, is they'll say things like, we're so diverse. And they'll start to pull out the numbers and the check marks and showing the check boxes that they've marked off. But when you start to look at the power structure in the organization, it's not reflective of diversity. There's diversity at the bottom sometimes, but not throughout the organization. Mm -hmm. And so that's a signal that maybe organizations can revisit how they're doing things and what they're prioritizing. 
Mm-hmm. That's a quick answer to the question. I mean, I think about uh, you play lacrosse. So you can have numeric representation on your roster, but if you don't effectively match people to the positions that they're good at, if you don't put people in the game and people don't get playing time, even though they could, how are you going to win championships? Mm-hmm. It's such a complex topic and there's so much that we need to learn to be yeah. able to do better. So can we go back to those three terms? Because when you yes. rattled those three off, I'm ashamed to admit, I don't think I actually understood the distinction between okay. those three. So can we unpack this a little further? Yeah, Aaron, do not be embarrassed at all. <laughs> because speak quickly, I have ADHD, Aaron. So, and it's a superpower, but sometimes it means I talk like that. So I love it. Diversity is about numeric representation. Mm-hmm. So that is literally looking at your roster, your organizational structure, and you're saying, how many women do we have? How many men do we have? How many Black people, Asian people, gay people, et cetera? That is diversity. Okay. Inclusion is how you put the diversity to work. Who is involved in the decision-making process? So it could be that you have, say, a lot of women at your organization, and so you say, we have uh, gender diversity. But when it comes to it, if the only people making decisions are men, then you Mm -hmm. don't have inclusion. Mm -hmm. You have diversity, but you don't have inclusion. And then equity is about inputs and outputs. It's about justice. And what I mean by that is if we both put in eight hours of work, Mm -hmm. we have the same qualifications and skills, then we expect to get paid the same. But we know because of things like the gender pay gap, there's a race pay gap, that that's not always the case. So mm-hmm. equity is about justice. It's about looking at how are we faring when it comes to taking care of people and making sure that they're equitably, not equally paid. Equality just means you give everybody the same thing. So no mm-hmm. matter how much they work, no matter the quality, you pay everybody X. That is not what we're asking for. Mm-hmm. We're saying that if we are smart leaders, we can tell good versus bad input. We can tell when people are putting their best effort into it. And we need to pay them, not just with money, but with other accolades. We need to pay them equitably. Does that help, Aaron? So much. I've never actually really understood all the differences there. And I think it's really important because it's sort of a crawl, walk, run in a way in terms yeah. of the goals exactly. around these organizations. Yeah. My last job in corporate was probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. I was in charge of early social media programs for a Fortune 500. And I'll never forget mm-hmm. that that was when I first heard conversations around the crawl version. So mm-hmm. the diversity component. I'll never forget, I mean, there were conversations around the executive team and they said, you know, we need to surface photos of people of color and kind of put them on our executive website page, Mm -hmm. even though they didn't have the inclusion component that you described, right? So the posturing and the optics has been at the forefront of conversation for like 10, 15 years now, right? But it's only caught fire, it feels like, recently. You know, obviously, Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and everything we've been going through as a society in the last couple of years. The realm of what that means, though, beyond the Black Lives Matter movement also is interesting. I mean, I was in a conversation, I hate to say it, like two months ago, Mm -hmm. and I was hired for a speaking engagement, Tina, and they said, oh, we're just so excited we have more diversity this year on the speaker lineup. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. Who'd you get? And there's a silence on the conference call. And it's a bunch of, you know, stale male pale dudes. And <laughs> and they go, well, we got you. Ah, <laughs> you're like, the diversity, Aaron. I was like, what? Like, I am like this like privileged white woman. Like, are you serious? How am I? Like, that's pathetic. <laughs> like, it was mm-hmm. so, you know, we, we have to laugh, otherwise we'll cry, right? But it's like, so there's so many interesting, I guess, levels of how we're measuring 
how we do better. And I guess my yeah. question is for people that are listening that are like, okay, we're hearing these conversations. We're hearing, you know, the DEI buzzwords. You know, what does success look like for them? I mean, for these guys, they were patting themselves in the back that they got a privileged white woman as a keynote speaker with nine other stale male pale dudes. They're like, oh, yeah. we're really doing it, right? 15 years ago, they're putting up a person of color headshot on the team website. Well, these days, now it's just about, like you were saying, that numeric, you know, the human capital or whatever, which yeah. is the terrible term, right? Like, how do they begin to have those hard conversations around, okay, what is success going to look like for us where we're not just about the optics or checking the box. Aaron, you have preached to me. This is so important, the question that you're posing. And I would encourage those people to stop and get a little bit curious because mm-hmm. I was in some of those same organizations where I'm like, wait a minute, why is my picture everywhere on the website? I'm not even mm-hmm. involved with this group. I want those mm-hmm. people to get curious and ask themselves, why are we doing this? What is Mm -hmm. our goal? Because Mm -hmm. typically it's fear-based. We're afraid that if we don't put these pictures up or if we don't have the one privileged white woman, people are going to accuse us of being what? Of being racist, of being sexist. What does that mean to you? It's something that we call DIG. DIG is about surfacing your own assumptions. And I think when those organizations do that, they're doing it because it is performative. They think that it's expected of them. It's sort of like when the husband forgets his wife's birthday and he has his administrative assistant send the flowers and the card and sign it. It's just to check a mark. So she doesn't get upset with him at dinner that night. It's not a thoughtful process, Mm. but we can be. So the first thing I would say is to get curious and dig, really try to surface and understand why are we doing this? Yeah. But this is where it goes a little bit deeper. Okay. I want for them to ask themselves, how do they feel about diversity? Mm-hmm. When was the first time they realized that they were stale or pale or male? What, mm. what is that? When did they realize that there was a valuation in our society? And I think people like to deny that. And they yeah. say, we're all human. I've even had people say, Dr. Tina, you are exacerbating the problem because you emphasize race and gender. Mm. We're all human. We're all equal. And I sit up here and say, is that true though? Would you trade places with Black people? Dead silence. Do you know the biggest predictor of where you're going to end up in life? Do you know what that is? It's your zip code. It's where you're born. And then it has to do with Real estate is very racially segregated. So there's a correlation between those things and sometimes a causality. And when you dig and you really unearth sort of what is the motivation for us to do these things, what is on our hearts and minds? And some people will debate with me and say, Tina, I don't care about people's hearts and minds. We need to just get laws and policies. Okay, I agree. Laws and policies are important. But how much more effective would those boards and those C-suites and executive teams be if they also understood what is driving my own relationship? When we say we have diversity initiatives, what is it harken or spark in me? That affects the way that you're going to then institutionalize these policies. Mm-hmm. It has to. That's the way the humans work. Mm-hmm. So when you dig and you surface those things, then you can see people think, well, I really feel this is unfair. It's a zero-sum game. When we talk about promoting women, it's not meritocratic. It's reverse sexism. I've heard so many things. Well, let's break that down. Why do you think that? Where do those belief systems come from? And let's try to understand and interrogate it so that you can at least figure out why you're behaving in the way that you're behaving. You have to be curious. So that's the first step. And then the second thing is bridge, which is where you're going to connect with people in an authentic way who are different from you. 
So rather than thinking that you understand, for example, how to effectively recruit women or Black people or Black women, et cetera, what if you had real relationships with them? I mean, Aaron, you were sharing with LGO how after a speaking event, you all critique each other and you give each other really heartfelt, and some people might say harsh feedback, but you can do that because you trust each other. And both of you are doing public speaking and you know that the goal is to help you improve. If she wasn't your friend, if you didn't trust her, then somebody giving you the same feedback, you might say, back up. I don't know Mm -hmm. you. That trust is the thing that facilitates communication at a level that many people have never seen. So, Mm. But you have to work at developing those relationships. You have to bridge. And then the third thing, to go from diversity to inclusion to equity, you often have to do what we call collective action, which is where we link arms and we say, okay, we need to look at how we recruit. What are the systems that are in place that may be unintentionally disadvantaging or advantaging certain people. And I can give you an example if you want. Sure. I mean, so, so I was working with a financial services organization and they had a qualification that you have an undergraduate degree. Objective seems cool. Well, I did focus groups with people based on their tenure in the organization. And there was a person who had been with the organization for a long time. And he was known throughout the firm as being the best person at a particular job. He trained the analysts, et cetera. But he said, I wouldn't be able to work for this company now because I don't have a college degree. But yet I am the one who they hired. I train everyone else. I am mm. consistently outperforming everyone else. And so what that says is there's a, there's a system in place that may be unintentionally disadvantaging people And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the work. Mm -hmm. So if I hadn't talked with him, if I hadn't developed trust with him and an authentic connection, I may have never had that information and then be able to share that with the rest of the executive team. So Mm -hmm. that's an example of how you do that dig work, then you can bridge. I love this example, Dr. Tina, because what you're suggesting is something that we know. Obviously, Just because we know doesn't mean that we do, but establishing that trust really is the cornerstone to being able to open up these discussions and to dig and to get curious and to reverse some of these fear-based decisions. And so you're building trust to build these bridges. And yet I think at the core of this is maybe because, like you were saying earlier, whether it's different ways of growing up, different cultures, different zip codes, Mm -hmm. people playing lacrosse or basketball or whatever, how can we get better at beginning to unlock more of this trust in the workplace with our DEI colleagues if we want to be a better ambassador or be a better evangelist or cheerleader, supporter, ambassador for them? How can we do better at the trust building component? You know what? Actually, Aaron, when you were talking, I think it would be helpful. I Forgive me if I go into professor mode, but the question you just asked made me think of three words that I like to distinguish that speak to trust. That's ally, accomplice, and co-conspirator. An ally is someone who believes in equity in theory. And I like to say that during the summer of 2020, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor were murdered. Uh People rushed to the bookstores and they bought. So you want to talk about race. They bought. We know how to be an anti-racist. White fragility. You highlighted that thing up. You wrote in the margins. And for many people, that was it. That information did not then translate into the workplace. They didn't do anything differently at work. Now, they may have educated themselves, but the education resided solely in them. 
Mm. So that's an ally. An accomplice is someone who does something with that information and who will act, but their actions are often directed and motivated by them. So let's talk about the gender pay gap. You might have a man who says, ladies, what y'all need to do is strike across the world. Every woman needs to stop working until pay equity happens. And the women might say, wait a minute, that's not what we want. We mm-hmm. have to do other things. But the accomplice will continue to push that agenda because he thinks that that's what's needed and that's what's best. Mm. That's an accomplice. The co-conspirator is the platinum level. So that's someone who believes in equity and who acts. But their actions are directed and motivated by the voices of the historically marginalized people groups that they want to help, whether that be women or Black people or Latinx or Asian or LGBTQ. That is how you build trust. Mm. That is how you start to build trust as a co-conspirator. It's where you have to have a balance. You want to hear the voices, but you can also do some things on your own and educate yourself and learn some things. But then you may reach out to someone who's different than you and, and you demonstrate that I value equity. I know that I benefit when everyone is treated equitably. None of us can be free until all of us are free. People think that they're free. But when you saw what was happening in the summer of 2020, I think all of us sort of felt, oh my gosh, my world a little bit different than I anticipated because these things are happening out there. Mm -hmm. And if there are people in your workplace who are being mistreated, it's not just that we want to stop the negative behavior. We want to pursue the positive behavior. Because what happens when everybody on a team feels engaged and respected and treated with dignity? You have better outcomes for the whole team. And it's fun when I'm around people who I respect, they respect. It's a whole different ball game than when I have to watch my back because they may stab me or betray me. Imagine if you could create a workplace mm-hmm. or improve your workplace so that people knew you had their back. That's a yeah. whole different ball game. It's so beautifully said. And thank you for the distinction of those three different levels. I love a good, better, best. Because good, better, best is life, right? It's not just it right and wrong. I mean, everything is messy and gray. And so I love the ally, accomplice, and co-conspirator because when you said that's the platinum level, I don't know if everyone else felt the same way that I did listening, but immediately I was like, I want to be platinum. I want to be a co-conspirator. I love this sort of metric because right now, I mean, I was just an ally. I read the books and then I feel like a totally like hashtag basic Basic B, basic B, right? Like, like I'm like, you're describing me. But I love these tiers because it gives us a, some kind of a roadmap to aim for and to check ourselves and to measure progress. We can't manage what we can't measure. And yeah. so I love those tiers. And thank you I for sharing say, this. Yeah, I want to say one thing because I want to yeah. give credit where yeah. credit is due. So yeah. I heard of different aspects of that ally, accomplice, co-conspirator from Dr. Tiffany Jana mm. and also Dr. Ella Bell and Dr. Stella Como. So I know Ella Bell and Stella Como. They're actually sort of my academic aunties. They mentor me. I always like to give credit where credit is due. And that's actually an example of shared sisterhood where Mm. I want to amplify their names. Mm. I don't need everybody to think that I created that. That's not Mm. what happened. I -hmm. may have a slightly different spin on it. You may have a slightly different spin on it, but let's give credit to the originators, the OGs. The OG, it's it's so important. Even us giving a shout out to LGO and it's team abundance, man. It's not team scarcity. And I think feminine global domination is a team sport. So I'm here for that for sure. I want to kind of go back to a really powerful statement that you made, which uh, again, not to sound like a total idiot, 
idiot, but I didn't realize that that was the biggest correlation is like the zip code and where you're born and yeah. the correlation between real estate and race. And I mean, I know it in a high level ish way, but to hear sort of some of the stats and some of the studies behind that is definitely really eye opening for me. And I hope some of our listeners, you know, I grew up in Baltimore and I went to an all girls Catholic high school. Our class president was black. We were a very mixed class. And so I don't know if that influenced the way that I see my teams. I mean, I've run three different companies. My last agency I ran for 15 years. We were acquired this past January. My fifth hire was a guy named Shreya. And I did not hire Shreya for DEI. I hired Shreya because I interviewed 11 women and she blew everyone out of the park. And that was it. And I never even thought about it. It wasn't even in my mind. Like, I don't know if it's from growing up in Baltimore or whatever, but it just wasn't, it didn't cross my mind. It's probably very naive and stupid that it didn't. Mm. So fast forward a couple months later and we are at a, a trade show in Chicago. Our client, is based in the Midwest. It's a very homogenous organization. It's, it's very white. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> and so I, I remember, so I, I had, you know, Shreya with me on the trade show floor. I had brought a different gal with me the year before, a different gal the year before. It's like our fourth or fifth year with this client. And they kept asking me like, how old is she? And, you know, is she an intern? All of a sudden it hit me like a bolt of lightning. And I'm like, holy shit. Mm-hmm. This is actually the bias people talk about. And I felt so defensive because I was like, how Dare you, dare right? You. <laughs> but we're in there and we're in motion. And I hate to say, I, I just kind of like checked it in my mind, but I didn't know what to do with that. I mm-hmm. didn't know what to say or do or change. I'd like to say that I just like walked out and quit the job. And no, that's not know, necessarily what you have to I do either, Aaron. I didn't know what to do. And so, and so anyway, so fast forward to what you were just saying about, you know, George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, back to the ally, long story long, as my husband always says, I buy the books. Okay. I'm in ally mode. So then I tried to do what everyone said is kind of the next thing, which is reach out to anyone that you've worked with and sort of like ask them, like, was there a situation where I didn't show up for you a situation I could have done better? Like, Uh, so I called Sharia. She's like, no, I mean, there was that one time at the trade show. And I'm like, I kept thinking about that. She goes, but I don't really know what you would have done. And as the conversation kept going, I just felt so annoying because I'm like, here's this woman that mm -hmm. is busy. That's charging forth in life. Why is it up to her to have to educate me. And then I'm like, well, shit. Like, so I'm reading the books. Now I'm talking to this woman. But now that's annoying for her. Now I'm annoyed at myself. And I just feel like there has to be a better way. Like, it's not up to her to educate me, I guess, is the right. point. And even this conversation, like, why should you have to educate me? But like, what else do we do? And so I don't have a question. I just don't know what to do with that. Well, well so Aaron, you know what? Sometimes it can help if we switch from race to gender. So you and I okay. are both women. You know, sometimes people say... I don't want to burden you, but imagine if you had a man who was trying to understand sexism, what would you say to him? What would you encourage him to do to educate himself? You might have a resource list, but it might also be things like, have you ever been in a situation where you were one of the only men where you could literally, you know, authentically observe Mm -hmm. and listen, but not talk? Where I'm a professor at uh, Babson College, a lot of the students are wealthy. And so I wanted them to put themselves in a situation where they were in a numerical minority because most white people have never experienced that for any consistent period of time because you don't have to because of the Mm -hmm. way that society is structured. If you want to, you never have to see someone you don't want to see unless you're from a historically marginalized group. And I should define that term. Undergirding the entire conversation we've been having, Aaron, is the notion of power. That, I think, is why many people just focus on diversity. Inclusion and equity require you to talk about power. Mm. They require you to talk about power. And I define power as control over and access to 
resources. So who gets to set the board? Who gets to make the rules? That is power. And in every society, historically, there have been some groups that have more power and some that have less. And so we use the term historically power dominant. The other term is historically marginalized. And so I'm a Black Christian woman. Mm-hmm. In the United States, Christian is a is a dominant religion. That's the you know the religion that many people say was the founding of the United States. And I had to check myself because it wasn't until I was a professor that I ever really considered that the academic calendar was based off of Christian holidays. We didn't have Diwali off. At one point, I don't even think we had Rosh Hashanah off. I mean, we did not have other holidays off. It meant that my Jewish colleagues would have to struggle around midterm time because mm. they would have major holidays, some of the most important holidays on the Jewish calendar, but they would have to decide between do I say something or do I just go along with the other faculty and have the midterm on this day or that day? Mm-hmm. That's not fair. That's not inclusive mm-hmm. and it's not equitable. So Christian is the power dominant, but I'm also from historically marginalized groups, Black and women. And when I'm around people who are white, let's say, I hope that they adopt the same posture, which is where they will listen more than they talk when we're having a conversation. When I'm around men and we're talking about gender equity, I hope that the men aren't trying to mansplain what that means. Most of us are in both power dominant and historically marginalized groups in some way, shape or fashion. And so when you're in a power dominant group position, listen more than you talk. Mm. Who do you follow on social media? What books have you read? What restaurants do you go to? Who do you have over for dinner? And now, so here's the thing. I'm not saying that you invite people over like in a touristy way. Oh, I want to learn about Black people. So I'm invite Tina over. Please don't do that. Have an actual relationship with people. Sometimes when you want to connect with someone, you don't have to talk about the thing that differentiates you. Mm. I mean, we're both public speakers. We could talk about that. We both are married. And then hopefully through those conversations, we understand each other's values. We begin to trust each other. We may make ourselves vulnerable, express empathy, right? Take some risks on each other's behalf. And then when we hit some friction or when George Floyd is murdered and we have a conversation about racial ethnicity, we've established a bridge before, So then when you reach out to me, it feels authentic Mm -hmm. as opposed to some people I haven't heard from in 20 years. And I appreciate the gesture. It sort of rings hollow because Mm -hmm. they haven't interacted with me throughout life. So what do you do in those situations? I, I gave a couple of very specific steps, but I really do think it's pausing and getting curious. Why did I respond this way? Why didn't I say anything? And by the way, Walking away from that client is not necessarily the best answer. It might be something that you talk about with Shreya. Maybe she wanted to address it in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Maybe in the next meeting in front of this client, you could very intentionally defer to Shreya to Mm -hmm. validate her authority. Mm -hmm. I trust Shreya. She speaks on my behalf. Mm -hmm. I won't be here the next meeting. She's going to be running it. Whatever you need to do, Mm -hmm. whatever the currency is, any number of ways that you can amplify the voices of other people. But we have to be pragmatic. If you walked away from every person who had a sexist or racist, Mm. or you might be walking away from most clients, that's not necessarily the answer. Now, I'm not saying sell out. I'm not saying that you you say, well, I know they're misogynist, but we need this deal. I think mm-hmm. you have to establish the line before you come close to the line. But I do think that there are things that you can do internally within your company and then things you can also do externally. It doesn't always have to be walking away. Mm-hmm. 
Is anyone in your <clears throat> orbit right now, whether it's your incredible client list, whether it's through your academia networks, personal networks, who or which types of institutions or groups or associations, who do you feel like is doing better than most when it comes to this? Like, are you seeing, you have to call out their names, but I guess, what are they doing that you're like, okay, you know, maybe it's not perfection, but gosh, that's a pretty good blueprint that if we could just replicate that like a hundred thousand million times, we'd see some real impact. I mean, who's doing okay with this? This is not a plug. Erin did not know that I was going to say this, but we just published an article in Harvard Business Review that talks about this. And we give specific examples because, you know, it is companies that are doing shared sisterhood. They're doing the dig, the bridge, and the collective action top down and bottom up. And what we're seeing, some of the results that we're seeing is people are shifting how they recruit. So there was a company that hired me because they didn't know if they should talk to their employees about George Floyd's murder. That's how it started. And they wanted me to help them. And then the murders of the Asian people had happened in mm-hmm. Atlanta. And they didn't know how to deal with that. I went in and I helped them. And then I ended up doing shared sisterhood workshops with the executives, doing focus groups, et cetera. Now that they've gone through their process, they can do those things on their own. Because I always tell people, my job is to get in and get out. If I'm here two years later, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. So it's organizations that are willing to do things differently, where they're willing to sort of drag those dark private thoughts out into the light where we have a conversation about it and where we help people work through those issues. And one thing I will say is all of us will make mistakes. The thing that I try to encourage is for people to extend grace to each other. And grace just means unearned or unmerited favor. So basically, Shreya, she could have been furious about that situation, but instead she had a conversation with you. She extended mm-hmm. grace. You see what I'm saying? So it's when mm-hmm. when you might deserve this, but instead we get that. We have to do that with each other. I think we're so concerned about, well, you made a mistake in this moment. Organizations that are able to allow their leaders and their employees to make those mistakes, extend grace, and provide resources to get better are seeing just multiplicative returns in terms of their culture, in terms of how they interact with clients, in terms of employee well-being. It just feels good when employees know, okay, I made a mistake and messed up, but my leader made a mistake and messed up, and then he or she or they role modeled how to recover. Mm -hmm. So that's a long answer to your question, but no, it's so good. And I feel like I have so many more questions. I could talk to you all day and night, but this is like, I think a very strong first step for our listeners who have been reading about this, whether, and I can't wait to read your HBR article, by the way, and I'm mortified that I haven't already read it. I think it just came out this week. You said, when did it come out last week? This week? It came out recently. We'll say that. Okay. So we're going to link to that article in the show notes. I cannot wait to read Shared Sisterhood, how to take collective action for racial and gender gender equity at work. In the book, you are talking with your colleague, Beth Livingston, all about everything we're talking about in today's episode. I mean, racial ethnicity, gender, power, authentic relationships, trust, advancement of women and all races, genders, everyone that wants to figure out this complex landscape, how to navigate it with a little more clarity and a little more impact and a little more of a game plan, a little more of a strategy. So your website is drtinaopi.com. I think we might need to have an episode two, a round two from Dr. Tina. Opie, but I just thank you so much for all these definitions and for these insights and these case studies and just making this feel less intimidating and more actionable from today forward. So I appreciate you sharing your heart, your wisdom, your brilliance. Thank you for being here today. 
Erin, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. We definitely have to have a part two. I can't wait. Thanks again. Thanks. Well, friends, you can get even more of the incredibly energizing and exhilarating, brilliant, and just straight up inspirational Dr. Tina Opie by visiting her online at drtinaopie.com. Also, check her out on Instagram. She's the author of the Shared Sisterhood book, and you can find her at HBR with her podcast. She also can be found at opconsultinggroup.com. So friends, let's commit to being better about being allies, accomplices, and co-conspirators and furthering the important mission of DEI in our personal and professional spaces by taking one small step one day at a time. Thanks for joining me and I'll see you guys next time.